0: Can you hear me okay, everyone? Yeah, keep coming through okay. Great. Lovely to see some new faces today. A um, couple of things just to mention before we jump in. Um, so yeah, definitely the intro, if you're new here, even if this is your first Sunday, you're really welcome to come tonight, as Stephanie's been saying. Um, for those who are part of this community who call this home, can I just emphasize one thing, which is giving. So we usually don't talk about giving. I don't think I've talked about giving for a few years, but there's little cards at the back just against the wall I'm holding one up now and it has all the details about how you can help support give financially um, and generously to this community and to the work that's going on here and we'd really love you to consider doing that especially if you call this place your home it's part of uh, our worship and our response and our participation the give of our time and, and our money and so all the details you can on this card and online at RedeemerCentral.com slash give um, and then of course we've all been kind of looking forward to, you know, kind of rebuilding community life, and that's in the works at the moment. We're gathering uh, small group leaders, tables, um, in a few weeks' time, and we're putting plans in place. So hopefully this month, um, those will be launching. And as uh, Carol has just alluded to at the end of this month, I think it's the 29th, 28th, 29th, here in the building we're going to have big table someday, um, which is a time to just have we'll worship and then we'll not have any kind of preaching, we'll have lunch together. So it'll be a bring your own potluck kind of lunch um, and we'll kind of set it all up and have lunch together. So that's keep an eye out for that and of course tables beginning later this month. So uh, if you're new, we're in a, a series at the minute um, called Steps of Faith, um, From the Known to the Unknown, and today we're going to continue looking at that. This series is really looking at the lives of men and women whose stories are recorded in the scriptures, the ancients from the book of Hebrews, particularly chapter 11, you have that line of men and women of faith. Um, and we can look at those men and women and their stories, at least a little glimpse of each story, um, to, sh- to see, uh, to allow them to show us what life with God looks like. And today we're going to look at the life of Moses, the whole thing. We're going to take 14 hours to look at the life of Moses, not. We're going to look at Moses, and I'm going to pull out one thing, I think, that we can uh, look at today. Um, Uh, We're going to read a little bit of Exodus in a moment, but I'm just going to set up really Moses as a character. It's harder to get a bigger, more significant character than Moses in the Hebrew Scriptures. The the book of Exodus, the second book of the Pentateuch, tells the the origin story of Israel, the the national origin story of Israel, and it starts with the shame of enslavement. Uh, under Pharaoh, Of course, Moses is that person that we know from all those movies and the Prince of Egypt. He is the one who Yahweh has sent to set his people free from slavery under Pharaoh. He's also the one who leads the Israelites, of course, out through the Red Sea. He's the one who receives God's law and commandments at Mount Sinai. He's the one during the wandering wilderness years who governs the people of, of Israel and writes uh, Arguably, is the author of the first five books of the Torah or the Pentateuch—Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He's a—he's a massive prophet figure, um, and there's so much that we could get into. Of course, there is. I want to draw out one focus today, not necessarily on the origin story of Israel, but on the origins of Moses himself and an encounter a moment that changed his life, his trajectory. As I said, he's probably arguably one of the most important Jewish prophets. And it's really interesting to note that his name, Moses, is not a Hebrew name. Um, It's uh, an Egyptian name. It means born of, which kind of speaks to this unique upbringing that he had. He was brought up and born into an Israelite family um, from the tribe of Levi. And his father, Amran, and his mother, Jochebed, his sister, Miriam, and his brother, Aaron. And he was born during those years of enslavement in, in Egypt. And as you'll know, maybe by the story that you've heard, read in the scriptures, or even some of the, the movies, Pharaoh decreed the, the death of all Hebrew male children. And providentially, Moses was spared this what you might call enforced infanticide program when his mother um, carried out a plan to save her child. She put him in a little ark and hid him in the reeds in the river. And we know that Pharaoh's daughter discovered the baby and adopted Moses into the courts of Pharaoh as her own. And Miriam, his sister, was actually serving the Pharaoh's daughter and she made a suggestion, well, I know a woman who could look after this little baby and, and actually introduced Pharaoh's daughter to his own mother, Jochebed, who nursed Moses in the household of Pharaoh. We all know perhaps that story. He grew up and was taught and trained in the Pharaoh's courts. And from the age of 20 to 40, Acts chapter 7, verse 22 says, he was mighty in words and deeds. According to the historian Josephus, he became a general in the Egyptian army, um, and he led a successful campaign, our campaigns. I've heard commentators break down Moses' life into three chapters. There's the Prince of Egypt chapter, but then there's also Moses the shepherd, nomad chapter, and then finally and thirdly, there's Moses the man of God who delivers the Israelites, across the Red Sea, who receives the law. We have this first chapter where Moses is, he's living like a prince. <clears throat> it's like royalty. He's living in Pharaoh's court. He's close to power and privilege and wealth. And then we have this third chapter where he's the man of God that we know, as I say, parting the Red Sea, receiving the law from God. What happened in between? What happened in between Moses, the deliverer, who's uh, going toe-to-toe with Pharaoh and the lawgiver? What happened in the middle chapter? That's what I want to kind of explore today. He's, he's living in wealth and power and privilege, but there's something within Moses that is stirring when he comes of age and he begins to see the plight of his own Hebrew people. He's living in wealth. He's living like a royal and yet he sees his own Hebrew people in desperate situation. The, the Hebrews had arrived in Egypt through the story of Moses, when Moses brought them. The famine had hit, and they came to Egypt. And for a number of years, they'd lived a good life. But there arose the power of Pharaoh, who didn't know that, Joseph, and didn't know that story. And thought, here's inherited this, I suppose you'd call it a problem, or what he began to use to his own advantage, and the Hebrew people became cheap labor for the empire. They labored in the brick kilns, they made bricks for Egypt. And Joseph, living as a prince in this land, saw the injustice. He saw his own people being taken advantage of, as one commentator said, locked into a permanent underclass. And one day, Moses became Angry, Maybe that is like how we respond when we see injustice in our world. We are angry at that injustice with like a righteous anger. In his anger, it spilled over and Moses killed an Egyptian out of that anger. He tried to hide the body and then it was discovered. And so it ends up that Moses flees into the wilderness, into the desert, into the Sinai, And so Moses is now going from the courts of Pharaoh as a royal literally into the desert and metaphorically into the desert too, the wilderness of disillusionment. You could imagine he thought his life was going to go one way and then suddenly he finds himself on the run like a fugitive and his whole life has changed in but a moment. But in a sense, haven't we all been there? And I don't mean that we've lived an incredible kind of life like Moses had, unless we have royalty in the room today. I don't think any of us have had an upbringing like that. But I think we've all perhaps experienced the wilderness. Or if we haven't, I'm sure we will. It's this part of life that you hit, this disillusionment that comes when things don't go the way you had imagined they might go. It sneaks up on you, or life throws a curveball And all seems maybe lost or or futile or hopeless or desperate or numb or meaningless or confusing or traumatic. And you may be numb or you're angry with the injustice in the world or the situation that you find yourself in. And you're in like a metaphorical Sinai desert place, a wilderness where there seems to be no life. And if we're true, perhaps that's most of our experiences or we've gone through that at a certain point of time. But most people who go through that kind of process, they will testify that it's in the wilderness where your soul can expand. It's in the wilderness where your soul can grow. It's in the wilderness where your soul can deepen. You will learn things in the wilderness that you simply cannot learn Anywhere else. And this was true of Moses, gone from son of Pharaoh and now a fugitive on the run. I want to look at what happens next. What happens next? Moses has gone from the known to the unknown. In this middle chapter, Moses moves and meets a Bedouin priest of the place called Midian, a man called Jethro, and he works for Jethro as a shepherd. And he eventually marries one of Jethro's daughters. So here he is now married, and he's shepherding, and he's shepherding a flock that's not even his own in the middle of nowhere. A fall from grace, you might say, or a very different trajectory for his life. Once raised in the most privileged place on the planet, at the, at the right of Pharaoh himself. Now he's in the middle of nowhere. Disillusioned with the plight of his own people, his own life. And we might call this the great stripping away the wilderness and the wilderness experiences that can come even into our own lives and strip away and scar away, scar our lives right the way down. But it is in this chapter that Moses is changed. Because in this middle chapter, Everything changes about the trajectory of Moses' life and all that he goes on to accomplish through God because Moses is about to encounter an awakening. He thinks he's at the end of his life and he's actually only beginning. Maybe that's a word for some of us here today in this room. You feel like you're at the end of yourself or life feels like a dead end, and perhaps. That shut door, which seems like a shut door, is simply just a new beginning. As Brian Zand writes, Moses is being prepared to possess the soul of a mystic. What he really means there is someone who has had a direct experience with God. And we all need that. A direct experience with God. The divine. Let me just read, it and be on the screen, a very short piece of scripture from Exodus 3 to bring us right up to the part of the story that we want to focus on. It says that Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led his flock beyond the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. It's also Mount Sinai. There's two names for that, Mount Sinai and Mount Horeb, Horeb. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of a bush. He looked, and the bush was blazing, yet it was not consumed. Then Moses said, I must turn aside and look at this great sight and see why the bush is not burned up. And when the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Come no closer, remove the sandals from your feet. For the place on which you're standing is holy ground. So Moses has this awakening moment at the burning bush. You may have heard this if you've been brought up in church life, in Sunday school. In a sense, it's not unremarkable to find a bush burning under a hot desert sun. The remarkable thing here is that the bush was burning, but not being burned up. It wasn't being consumed. It was a flame, but it wasn't being consumed. It was in flames, but it wasn't burning up. It was a wonder. And here's the verse I'd love to pick out for today, which is in verse 3. And it says, then Moses said, I must turn aside and look at this great sight. This is where everything changes in the Moses story. This is at the middle of the middle chapter of his life. And everything pivots on that verse. Because Moses realizes he needs to pay attention to something. Something's happening. He needs to look longer. He needs to peer into something he hasn't looked at before. He needs to pay attention. The bush is burning, but it's not being destroyed these are not the ordinary flames of combustion, but these are, in a sense, the fires of God. And when Moses pays attention to this wonder, it's then when he hears God's voice. <laughs> and then Moses responds, here I am. And God asks Moses to take off his shoes as he is standing on holy ground. Years ago, I visited, I visited the Middle East and visited several mosques and temples, and maybe you have too as you've traveled and went into those places and had to take off my shoes because, out of reverence, um, as a place of s- s- a sacred place, a holy place, um, this is what's happening here at this bush in the middle of nowhere with no one around. Moses takes off his shoes for this is holy ground. And in conversation, he discovers the, the voice, the mysterious name of God I, I am who I am. And in a sense, Moses is rebirthed here. His his story as prince of Egypt doesn't end. The story as nomadic shepherd doesn't end, but there's this new story starting, the story of Moses as man of God, starting here at a burning bush at Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai. So in this middle chapter of Moses' life, in the middle of the middle chapter, here's Moses, a forgotten man with a scandalous past, a murderer, A former prince in Pharaoh's courts, now a fugitive working for his father-in-law in in the outback as a nomadic shepherd. And all changed because of a mysterious encounter with this burning bush. Moses is reminded in that moment who he is, who God is, who the divine is. And he is given, as we read on, a vocation, a mission, a job to go and lead his people out of slavery and into freedom. And we're not gonna to get to that today. I just wanna focus on this encounter at the burning bush. You might be saying, Dave, it's all very well. Um, we go through life and I don't see any burning bushes. I don't see any burning bushes, I don't see any miracles. There's no wonders that would make me change course. There's no, nothing that would make me gain hope. Maybe you're busy. Maybe we're busy building bricks, making bricks for Egypt, or maybe we're angry at the state of this world, or maybe we're lost or disillusioned in the wilderness. Dave, there's no burning bushes anywhere to be seen. Reality is what it is. No voices are speaking to me, except I believe there's more here for us today in this story that we can learn And it's got to do with this one thing, and it's the one thing I'd love us to take away from today if you forget everything else, and it is about the art of paying attention. We live in this secular age that's trained us, formed us to think in a certain way, even as Christians, science and technology, many people don't believe in God, or the divine, or the miraculous, we've grown up and we've left those fairy tales behind, burning bushes and all of that, culturally and personally. We used to live in a world, of course, where angels and demons and burning bushes and holy places and holy ground was normal. But since the Enlightenment, increasingly and perhaps mostly in the West, this world has become flat. It's become what we might call Disenchanted, that all there is to reality is what we can touch and what we can see. And there's no room for mystery. There's no room for the divine. There's no room for the invisible. There's more to life than we can touch and see. Richard Beck, who's written a brilliant book on this, a Christian psychologist, he writes that many maybe including us in the church, see our culture as evidence of a crisis of belief. But he argues that it's actually just a crisis of attention. That God hasn't gone anywhere. That we've just lost our capacity to see. To see in a way that's different, I guess. Like we've been talking, or like we've been singing about, like John and Caitlin led us in we bow our hearts, we lift our hands, we turn our eyes to you again, we see. There's a kind of what he calls an attention blindness that has shaped our imaginations and led to this lack of holy expectation that there could be anything beyond what we can touch and see that might interrupt anything sacred or divine about life, that life amounts, as I said, to all that we can touch and see we live in a very disenchanted world we don't go to holy wells to throw coins in to be healed from our sicknesses we go to hospitals and we get treated and that's all good but we are living and swimming in this world which is completely flat and disenchanted it doesn't have to be this way and Moses encounter with the divine at the burning bush is an example of how faith isn't about belief, it's about attention, where we give our attention to, you can cultivate this capacity to experience God as alive, as living, as present in, in our lives, even in a world of great injustice, even in a world where there's great anger or disillusionment, We can cultivate a capacity to see differently. Encountering God's presence requires a shift of attention. Moses intentionally directs himself to this strange sight that he must attend to. God is is there, but we have to retrain ourselves to see. There are burning bushes everywhere if we have the eyes to see them. If we slow down to notice, if we pay attention in prayerful humility, we might see that God is everywhere and through everything. The author Marilyn Robinson writes about this in her novel Gilead. Bear with me as I read this little quote. She says, It has seemed to me that sometimes as though the Lord breathes on this poor grey ember of creation, and it turns to radiance for a moment or a year or the span of a life. And then it sinks back into itself again. And to look at it, no one would know it had anything to do with fire or light. Wherever you turn your eyes, the world can shine like transfiguration. You don't have to bring a thing to it except a little willingness to see. A little willingness to see as Christian mystic Simone Weil said attention is the only faculty of the soul that gives access to God attention where we look where we place our attention if you're experiencing doubt today or anger or disillusionment or weariness today it's not because you don't have faith or that you're suffering from disbelief. It's just simply about where your attention is pointed. And there's this feeling of absence or lack that we can experience as human beings in this world that points to there must be more to life than this. And I think that's the start of us recovering a sense of the divine in everything, a sense of re-enchantment, a sense of the possibility that we can encounter and live with God. And that ache within us, it should give us doubts about our doubts. It should make us skeptical about our skepticism. It should make us disenchanted with our disenchantment. You see, there must be surely more to life than what we can touch and what we can see. And paradoxically, the ache, as Richard Beck calls it, the ache within us, it's the first step of faith, it's the thing that signposts the way forward. On Friday morning, I went to the dentist, and uh, unfortunately, I have work that needs done, (laughs) he told me. And as he tapped his little instrument on one of my teeth, I just got a shoot of pain. You've had that experience? And it's that pain, it's that ache that actually points to this, in a sense, the problem that needs addressed, that needs attention. That feeling that we have is actually not that you're a lost cause or disillusioned in the wilderness, that you've lost your faith. You're maybe actually right at the center of faith, but you're just experiencing the sense that there must be more, and I'm contending for it. Christian Weinman, who's a poet and a writer, says this, when what we call doubt is often simply dullness of mind and spirit, not the absence of faith at all, but faith that is latent within the lives we're not quite living. I love that. The faith is not about belief, but it's about attention. But where we give our attention, who we're looking to. And what is missing in our world is this discovery or rediscovery of the divine, the burning bushes that are everywhere. They are all around us. We cannot reduce our faith, Redeemer, to simply morality Or political action. As good as those things are, in fact, living good, just lives is maybe the most important thing that we can do as followers of Christ. However, an enchanted faith, by contrast, is this wonder and joy filled adventure with God. Like opening the wardrobe into Narnia. There's more to life than simply the morality and the political action. We are from a different world. We belong to a different family. We live in a different way. We're filled with the spirit of God. And the miraculous and the presence of God is everywhere if we have eyes to see. Not wishful thinking, but perhaps the most truest moments of our lives when something from elsewhere breaks through something deep resonates with us. And it doesn't have to be a Damascus Road experience, but it could be more soft, more quiet, and more subtle, where the world just seems to come alive. Maybe you've had those experiences where the world kind of transfigures. It comes alive, where everything just seems to be the way it should be in that moment. And if you could just capture that and bottle that and sell that, you'd be a rich person. But there's like some transfiguration that happens where you're just filled with awe or wonder Perhaps that's just in sharing a meal or seeing a sunset or some part of life. It doesn't have to be this dramatic thing, but there's just this signpost to the miraculous, to the divine, to encountering the presence of God in everything. I want to finish with the story of the Catholic monk and writer Thomas Merton. Thomas Merton was a mystic and he he shares this experience that he had in Louisville, Kentucky in 1958, he was standing on the corner of a street, looking at all the busy people bustling around him, shopping and working, and they're standing on the busy corner. He saw something in a different way that day, and this is what he writes. He says this, in Louisville, at the corner of Forth and Walnut, in the center of the shopping district. I was suddenly overwhelmed with the realization that I loved all those people, that they were mine and I theirs, that we could not be alien to one another, even though we were strangers. It was like waking from a dream. The sense of liberation from an illusory difference was such a relief and such a joy to me that I almost laughed out loud. I had the immense joy of being a man, a member of of a race in which God himself became incarnate, and if the sorrows and stupidities of the human condition could overwhelm me, now I realize what we all are. And if only everyone could realize this, but I couldn't be explained, there was no way of telling people that they are walking around, shining like the sun. This is just like a testimony that Thomas Merton had, just on a normal, everyday experience, walking through a normal street. But for some reason, he, his attention shifted. He had this. he saw differently. He just saw everything differently. It was the same but different. And in a sense, this is what faith is about. It's not beliefs in the right order in our head. It's about living life alive and awake and paying attention to the goodness of life that is everywhere, even in the midst of our disillusionment, even in the midst of our anger, even in the midst of injustice. We can see and taste the mark of God, of the divine in this world, his presence in this world. God's not gone anywhere. He's here. But our prayer as a people should be, Lord, give us eyes to see. Give us eyes to see the beauty of your name. Sometimes the disillusioned life is forced upon us. Life doesn't work out or isn't working out the way we would have thought. Or sometimes we just find ourselves incensed by the injustice in the world and we find ourselves disillusioned or everything feels flat and meaningless but there is a way to move into a joy-filled life that encounters the presence of God. A direct experience between you and God is possible and I believe it simply starts by cultivating curiosity and an openness to everyday life and I can't say it any better than this, and I'll end with this Elizabeth Barrett Browning quote, which says this, Earth is crammed with heaven, and every common bush aflame with God, but only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit around and pick blackberries." Would you stand with me as we pray and John and Caitlin are going to come and lead us. Maybe we could just stand in a moment of silence as they prepare to lead us. I'm just going to pray just to to lead us and quiet our hearts and still our hearts. We may pay attention perhaps to what God might be encouraging us with today, what he might be saying to us, what he might be reminding us about. He is a present God. He is here. He is with us. He is in the midst. He desires to be encountered and experienced and discovered. So Father, we just pray by your spirit today that you would pull back the scales from our eyes, crack open the incrustation around our hearts, Lord. Give us curiosity and openness to see this world a flame with your goodness, with your beauty, with your delight. Make us amazed. Shake us out of our slumber, Lord, we pray. Show us you, the beauty of your face. Reveal to us Christ. As we worship and as we pray and as we break bread in a moment at the table, Lord, may you do a work in us today to help us see, to pay attention to what you're doing in the most ordinary and everyday ways. In Jesus' name, amen.